Good morning. Our guest on this edition of Point of View is the author of an insightful new book on the relations between blacks and whites in America. It's David Shipler who won the Pulitzer Prize for his 1986 book, Arab and Jew, Wounded Spirits in a Promised Land, applying the same sort of one-on-one journalistic approach to the United States. Shipler's written a book called A Country of Strangers, Blacks and Whites in America. Welcome to Point of View. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. It's actually a return to the Chicago area for you. I mean, much of your book deals with uh, relations among people in the Chicago area. Oak Park, for instance. I mean, my hometown. Yes, I spent some uh, time in Oak Park uh, interviewing people. Uh, There are quite a few interracial couples, for example, who live there. It's a fairly safe place uh, psychologically and emotionally for uh, people, blacks and whites, who are married to each other and for biracial children. Um, and I also took a look at the way Oak Park has handled the question of integration uh, and compared it in the book. There's a subchapter on Oak Park comparing it with Teaneck, New Jersey, also an integrated town, but one that uh, did not handle a crisis very well after a black youngster was shot and killed by a white police officer several years ago. Oak Park uh, has made a lot of um, efforts over the years to do what I suppose could be called managing integration. Um, Sherlyn Reed, the uh, uh, director of community relations for the village, uh, told me, uh, she said, you know, I believe segregation was planned. Therefore, if you want to have integration, you better plan it. (laughs) Uh, So uh, real estate agents were enlisted to uh, cooperate with the village in uh, making sure that people who wanted to buy houses uh, or rent houses, rent apartments, knew the policy of the town, which was uh, that uh, there should not allow, there should not be enclaves that were all white, all black. Now, you know, I realize that in practice this doesn't always happen. It's a tough thing to accomplish, but um, from what I can gather, uh, there's a lot of effort that goes on to um, encourage people, both blacks and whites, to look for housing in neighborhoods where they might not naturally want to be. Uh, and to try to defuse some of the anxieties that uh, both might have. I mean, blacks who might be a little worried about the hostile reception they could get on a mostly white block, and whites who perhaps are afraid there are too many blacks on that particular block, even though they might like the house, and and so forth. And there's a lot of effort that goes on. It's a good case study, I think, in how a community can work very hard to accomplish something that's very difficult to achieve. Yeah, and I mean, the difficulties have popped up again and again. And just to be fair, you know, as a resident of Oak Park, you know, I want to let people know that Oak Park certainly has its problems uh, in terms of race relations and, and ending uh, this, this, this distance that separates blacks from whites in this country, as uh, many other residents, I'm sure, will tell you. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I found and wrote about in A Country of Strangers uh, is that in Oak Park and elsewhere where there are so-called, quote, integrated situations, there's a lot of internal segregation. For example, if you go into, and I don't mean you know, segregation by law, but segregation by habit, by comfort zones. Uh, if you go into integrated high schools, for example, Oak Park and River Forest High School being an example, but there are many others in the country, um, you'll see that uh, black and white students often have separate spheres of friendships. They sit separately in the cafeterias. Uh, there's a lot of tracking in the schools so that if you walk through the halls and look into a classroom, you can often tell just by glancing at the predominant race of the students whether or not it's an honors class. For instance? Well, for instance, uh, in in Oak Park, there have been studies done uh, by the school system that show 
uh, many fewer blacks in honors classes than, than whites. In fact, as I remember the numbers, I can't give you the figures off the top of my head. I'd have to look them up. But in some cases, it's only half the percentage of blacks in honors classes as whites. Uh, some, some of that has to do with uh, self-selection by black students. Uh, there is a very corrosive and self-destructive tendency among some black kids to regard academic achievement as acting white. And, you know, they'll chide each other, they'll criticize each other for getting good grades or working hard or trying to be in honors classes. They say, well, you're trying to be white. Now, in all schools, I mean, I remember when I was in high school and I went to an all-white high school in New Jersey, uh, you know, there was always a lot of teasing of kids who did well. I mean, there's this kind of nerd, uh, anti-nerd factor and so <laughs> forth that goes on. But when you add the racial component to that, when you when blacks condemn each other for trying to be something they're not racially, it takes on a bite. It has a, a kind of edge to it uh, that it doesn't have when, you know, just white kids are, are, you know, bantering with each other about how one or another is a nerd. So it, it, it's a problem, and it's a problem that needs working on. And, and again, I want to make it clear that, that what you found, what you're talking about here is not just Oak Park, which happens to be the Chicago area community that you focused on, but in, in similar communities across the country. And That's right. And, uh, you know, there are, I, I went to quite a few suburban integrated high schools. I, I spent time at Lexington High School in Massachusetts, Teaneck High School, uh, and uh, Oak Park and River Forest High School. I, I know this also because of my own hometown in, in Maryland, where my Two of my children went to high school. It's an integrated school. There's busing. Uh, it's an excellent school academically. And there's a lot of healthy racial interaction, but there's also a lot of separation. So it's, you know, this is a, um, this is a, a problem on college campuses as well. Uh, it's something, it's a problem, but it's also a phenomenon that I think we have to understand. Um, you know, integration in America is supposed to mean power sharing. Uh, but it's rarely actually meant that. Usually what it's meant is putting blacks and whites physically together in the same place. And many blacks don't feel that they're anything more than invited guests. They don't feel ownership of the situation. Whether it's a largely white high school, whether it's a mostly white college, whether it's a company, a corporation, or a government agency, many black people feel that they are there only uh, at a certain, you know, they're, they're barely tolerated there. Uh, they're often left out of decision-making processes, for example. Uh, a, a black fellow who worked for IBM in New Orleans told me that uh, for three years he didn't know that every evening after work a happy hour was going on at a nearby bar where all the white men in the office were getting together and making deals and planning business and so forth. He was simply excluded from that. And he couldn't break in. Neither could the women, by the way. So he finally left. Now, that kind of thing happens uh, in many different settings in many different ways. And one of the things that the results of it is that many blacks begin to cluster together to find support from each other, uh, from other people who, with whom they can talk easily. Point of view on WNUA 95.5. Charlie Myerson here talking to Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Shipler. His new book is A Country of Strangers, Blacks and Whites in America. We probably should back up and tell people just how you've come to, to know all this, how, how, you, how you wrote this book, how you well, conducted your, your journalistic endeavors here. I spent five years crisscrossing the country interviewing ordinary people, really. And I mean, I, I really stayed away from 
most of the scholars, except here and now and then when I felt they could, you know, help me gain insight. I stayed away from the prominent people, the people you read about in the papers and see on television all the time. I stayed away from the extremists who exacerbate tensions on both sides. And I focused on ordinary folks uh, of, from all walks of life, blacks and whites, most of whom have a lot of daily interaction with each other. That is, they, they work together or they go to school together, they study together, uh, they live together, and sometimes they are in the same families together. Um, and uh, by talking to them about their own attitudes toward each other and how these attitudes are expressed in the way they behave, actually, the way they interact, and how they perceive how the other interacts, because perceptions become reality to many people, even though a gesture, a word, an act is not meant to be offensive. It is often taken that way. So that was really my method. And after I uh, did a lot of interviews for all these years, I began to organize the material. And what I found was that um, stereotypes, which I think still exist uh, powerfully in America, even though they may not be expressed all the time in, in polite company, the images, the negative images that whites have of blacks, and negative images that many blacks have of whites do have an effect on behavior. So I began to see patterns. So I organized the whole middle section of the book around bundles of stereotypes to lay them out, but they're not, it's, this is not a scholarly book. I mean, no, this is it, a, and, and I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's, it's <laughs> wonderfully easy reading and, and absorbing reading, too, and, and I think you'll be moved by it. I mean, it's full of real people, and I think a lot of people who read the book will see themselves in it, actually, because uh, um, people have told me, both blacks and whites, that, who have read it, and it's just out, so there are not that many yet, you know, have said, boy, you know, I, I really do, uh, it's really made me think, because I recognize a lot of these attitudes. Yeah. So I, I just, what I did was try to lay out the, the prejudices so people could see them. I mean, the first chapter in that regard is about body, all the prejudices that have to do with the way people look and dress and speak, uh, our, our strange uh, adoration of black athletes, which some blacks take offense to because there seems to be uh, a kind of dichotomy between physical prowess and mental prowess. That is, you know, the, the notion that uh, a, a black person who is very good at athletics may not be so great upstairs, you know, in the, in the mind. And the second chapter in this section is called Mind because the image of blacks as mentally inferior is a very powerful stereotype. It's existed in this society for several hundred years. You see it in Jefferson, for example, in Thomas Jefferson's writings. Um, and then there's a chapter on morality, how many whites see blacks as immoral, uh, how they distrust them, uh, they think they're dishonest, uh, uh, then there's one on violence, because violence is a major image that people have of one another. Blacks have it of whites, whites have it of blacks. And then finally, power, which is, uh, I think, perhaps the core of much racial tension in, in this country. How much power are, willing, are whites willing to share with blacks? Um, and how much power can blacks really achieve in certain institutions, in politics, and so forth? As you wrote this book, or as you began to write this book, or as you wrote it, or after you were done with it, who did you find, who did you expect you would be writing to? Were you, were you writing equally to blacks and whites? Did you expect this book would, would move blacks and whites equally? I think, yes, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I've certainly 
didn't have a restricted audience in mind when I was writing it, but I think, I hope that both blacks and whites can learn a lot from this book because I write about whites' attitudes in a way that I think many blacks don't, haven't seen before. I mean, uh, one black fellow who read the book said he was amazed at how I got whites to say the things that they say in the book. Uh, you know, he had never, I mean, he had suspected people thought this way, but he had never actually seen it in print. Um, and there are whites who I think are fascinated by the way ba- blacks think about whites and about race, don't understand how they think that way. I mean, I, I had the experience, for example, after the O.J. Simpson uh, verdict of not guilty of many whites who knew I was working on the book coming up to me and saying, why do blacks think he's innocent? And I finally said to them, look, if you go to school or work with a black person, sit down with him one day, if he's a male especially, and ask him a simple question. Have you ever been hassled by the police? And I guarantee that you'll get an education because I got an education all over the country. I rarely found a black male over the age of 17 or 18 who had not been hassled by the police. In Oak Park, there was an example. Uh, a, a young man named Jason Deichler, who uh, is biracial, who was riding his brand new bike right in front of his house when an Oak Park police officer pulled him over, or police pulled over, and, and challenged him and said, you know, where'd you get that bike? And it wasn't until his friends came along and verified that it was indeed his that the, you know, the cop let him go. Now, that's a terribly humiliating experience for a kid, although uh, to Jason's credit, he, he didn't harbor real, real bitterness about it. In fact, he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times about it later, in which, he, which I had suggested that he do. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he came across as a wonderfully generous uh, person. Uh, but you can understand how some people might harbor real poisonous feelings toward the police after an incident like that. Point of view on WNUA 95.5. Our guest is author David Shipler. His book is A Country of Strangers, Blacks and Whites in America. What different, well, let me back up. You're, you're a white man. Um, Last and, time I looked. Yeah, yeah. And, and did you, what barriers did you find, if any, that you, that you had to overcome in, in getting to the, the roots of, of black Americans' feelings about, about whites, to about my, race? To my surprise, actually, I found blacks generally much more open and forthcoming than whites were uh, in talking to me about race. I think the reasons for that were several. First, most blacks don't go through a single day without thinking about race. They can't avoid it. Secondly, they've asked themselves most of the questions that I've put to them, and maybe some questions I hadn't even thought of. So they were ready for me, in a sense. They, they were able to talk about their own attitudes. And finally, they generally, I think, were amazed and pleased that some white guy would want to sit down and put the subject of race on the table. It just rarely happens. Uh, some of them said after the interviews, I really enjoyed this. <laughs> uh, they were surprised, I guess, as I was. Um, whites generally were more difficult to talk to because we don't have to think about race personally every day. We don't think about our own attitudes that much. We're not very introspective on the subject. Uh, and when I probed and pushed people, they often got defensive and, and started talking about other subjects, you know, change the subject uh, approach. So uh, I, I was quite struck by how easy it was to talk about race with most African-Americans. What are the most memorable images, uh, conversations, or events that, that you witnessed as you prepared to write this book? One was uh, uh, an interracial couple in Oak Park, actually. 
I was talking to them about their marriage, and I asked, uh, she's white, he's black. They've been married about 25 years. And I asked them how their families reacted when they got engaged. And she told me that her brother, she's white, her brother came to her with his wife and denounced her and said, what are you trying to do, kill our father? You know, he'll have a heart attack. You know, this is terrible. What are you trying to do? She was so angry, she threw them out of the house. Five years later, her brother came to her and said, you know, I'm really ashamed of myself. That was the worst thing I've ever done, and I'm sorry. Now, she told me this story while her husband, who's black, was sitting next to her. And when she finished the story, her husband said, but he's never apologized to me. And all these years, I go to family holidays, and I get big hugs, and it still gnaws at me that he did this, that he's never said anything to me. So I said, well, did you ever say anything to him about it? And he kind of blinked in surprise and said, well, no. Now, to me, that's a metaphor for America because we can't talk about race very well. Here is a family where something happened for which this person is truly sorry, and yet the subject cannot be discussed between black and white, even when there's agreement that it was a shameful thing to do. Well, how do we apply that metaphor to the nation as a whole? The continuing debate, does the United States, does the president issue a, an apology, reparations for slavery? Oh, I don't know. That, you know, that seems a little empty to me, to be honest, uh, the, the idea of apologizing for slavery. I, I think that the, a more constructive approach is to continue or to enrich the discussion of race that he has tried to begin. Uh, I take note of the fact that he didn't start this until he was safe in his second term, which tells you something about the mood of politics. But uh, nevertheless, you know, you have to give him credit for understanding that this is a subject that we need to talk about. Now, there are conversations and there are conversations. I mean, not all conversation is helpful. It can also be divisive. So it'll be up to this national advisory board or president's advisory board to to fashion meetings and, and forums and networking and all that sort of stuff that, that really helps people understand. I, I think one divide that has to be addressed is the divide between those who see racism and those who do not. And that's a big divide. Uh, it's not only along racial lines, but what I found when I was working on A Country of Strangers was how much prejudice has gone underground since the civil rights movement. There's a lot of indirect, nuanced, encrypted prejudice now. And, um, you know, we have to be sensitive and tuned into that if we're going to correct for it. You had another image for us. Yes, the other image came toward the end of my research, actually. I thought I'd asked all the questions I could possibly think of, but there was one I had never thought to ask. It came at a workshop in Washington, D.C., where there were about 50 people, I think, 60 people, uh, many different uh, ethnic groups, races. And um, the facilitator asked us to respond to his questions by standing. Uh, he had asked us also to pair up with someone fundamentally different from ourselves, and a young black woman and I had paired up, and we were led through a structured conversation in which we found out a bit about each other. And then the facilitator started asking us questions. Um, I have been denied the use of my credit card because of my race. All those uh, stand, and uh, only the people who were black and Latino stood. Or maybe he did it the other way around. I have never been denied. I can't quite remember. Maybe the whites stood. But in any case, it was a, a, a terrible div division there. Um, I know who the, that the next president of the United States will be of my race, and only the whites stood. 
I have to leave my culture at the door when I go to work. And only the, the blacks, Latinos, and Asians stood. All of us whites were left sitting. And then he asked the question that I had never thought to ask. I have considered not having children because of racism. And the young black woman sitting across from me stood as slowly and gracefully as if she were at a funeral. And she and I looked at each other across this immense gap of misunderstanding. And, and I mean, we were strangers to each other, that's for sure. My children are my fondest joy. And although I can understand individuals deciding on an individual basis that they don't want children, that's, that's one thing. But to be forced into that decision by external circumstances is something that I find deeply sad. Now, she told me later that she and her husband had discussed this, and her husband really wanted children. She just had talked to so many of her black friends who said, you know, having children, having a black child, especially a black boy, is so difficult in America uh, in the 1990s and, and probably will continue to be so. So that was a learning experience that I had right at the end of my research, and I began the last chapter with that story. Having learned all this, having written all this, knowing what you know now that maybe you didn't know when you began, do you have much hope that, uh, that blacks and whites will become something, something more, something better than strangers in America? And if so, how? You know, a journalist is a perpetual or a professional pessimist, so I, I, can't, I can't have much hope. But I, I will tell you that I did find a lot of people all around the country who were good people, blacks and whites, who were working hard on this. They don't get much press. Um, they don't advertise their efforts. But in their jobs, in their schools, in their communities, actually, there's a lot of goodwill if it can be harnessed and channeled, uh, which I hope the president's effort may be able to do. So I'm, I can't say I'm hopeful, but I, I kind of I have, some, I have some really good feelings about this society's capacity to be self-correcting. I've been in other parts of the world, the Middle East, uh, the Soviet Union, where people don't address these issues as honestly as we do. And in a free society, the first step is to turn the problem into the sunlight. That's what I've tried to do in this book, A Country of Strangers. And succeeded, I'd say. Thank you. Our guest on Point of View on WNUA 95.5 has been David Shipler. His book is A Country of Strangers, Blacks and Whites in America, $30 from Knopf. I'm Charlie Meyerson. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.